From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to the Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always, Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. G'day, Fred. G'day, Andrew. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And you? Yeah, oh, still alive, so that's always a good start it to the day. Indeed, yes. <laughs> uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to look at a, a proposal uh, for mining asteroids, which sounds just so out of this world that it probably is. And uh, we're going to also look at uh, an astronaut. And, and I, I might venture to say that if you went to a 1,000 people in the street and said, who's Edgar Mitchell, they would struggle. They'd say, oh, did you play football or run track at the Olympics? Um, no, I, I think a lot of people would struggle to uh, nail it down, uh, which is pretty sad because he's one of 12 people who've done a spectacular thing in their careers and... Uh, yeah, one of, probably one of the more forgotten astronauts in our history. But we'll get to that shortly. First of all, asteroids in space and being able to mine them. Now, I'm guessing they're rich with things that we would otherwise not be able to get access to or have a shortage of. And this is coming from the government of Luxembourg. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so uh, let me just qualify what you said, Andrew, uh, you said that you're guessing they'll be rich in, in these various things that we, which are precious on Earth and which we're short of. Uh, and the, the bottom line is they might be rich in ah. these things that we're... <laughs> because at the moment, nobody knows. Um, this is a story that goes back, actually, four years or so. Um, in uh, 2012, uh, two companies in the USA made the headlines by announcing uh, within a few months of each other that they were putting together teams of people who were basically planning missions to what are called near-Earth asteroids, uh, asteroids that come near the Earth, as you might guess from mm -hmm. the name. Um, and not looking at things the size of, um, you know, Ceres, the, the biggest of the asteroids, the dwarf planet Ceres, which is nearly a 1,000 kilometres across. They're talking about things that are maybe 30 metres or so in diameter and the possibility of mining them for minerals. So these two companies, Deep Space Industries and Planetary Resources, both with uh, pretty solid uh, financial backing from, um, you know, from, from high-tech uh, uh, companies here on Earth. They both put in proposals that what they were planning to do was, first of all, send out, uh, set, set up a space program to, to put uh, small uh, telescopes into orbit around the Earth, 
specifically with the purpose of finding these asteroids, and that's a good thing because the more things we've got looking out for asteroids, the less likely we are to be taken by surprise by one that might hit the Earth. And we won't uh, but need also, Willis's help to save us. Uh, of course, all of that. That's yeah. right. So, uh, but but the real reason why they're doing this is the commercial one. They're trying to look at asteroids that might have the potential for containing some of the rare metals and minerals that are used in high-tech industries like communications, computers, all that stuff, but which are rare on Earth and are, in fact, in some ways dwindling in their resources. So the kinds of things they're talking about are platinum, uh, iridium, palladium, these... Uh, Rubidium, I think, is another one. These metals that, uh, that, that, that are pretty rare here. Um, why are they rare on Earth? Because these things actually dissolve in molten iron, and in the early history of the Earth, they all sank to the middle. Ah. So if you could get to the Earth's core and dig them out, that would be great, but that's not a convenient place to go, and it actually turns out that it might be more convenient to go and hook an asteroid. Wow. So that's the, 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 the backstory. But the reason why this is now in the news is it's almost, um, you know, it's one of these things... <laughs> Excuse me. That is so far, far out, and and comes from such left field that you think it's it's almost a joke, but it's not. <laughs> uh, and that is that the government of Luxembourg, that small European state, has basically uh, announced that it is going to get behind asteroid mining in a big way, and it's going to do that by actually providing support for the sorts of high-tech companies that might research the technologies that you would need to go to an asteroid um, with robotic spacecraft, I hasten to add. Nobody's really imagining that somebody will get out there with a shovel. It's all about ro robots um, mining this stuff. Uh, so supporting the, the technologies that, that would make that possible, and maybe even investing money in it. So the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg um, will essentially uh, or is planning to become the centre of the uh, the world space mining industry in the sense that they are very open to the idea i mean the, the two companies that i mentioned that already exist they're both based in the in the usa uh, however there is uh, there is something else that they're planning to do which i think is really quite interesting and in some ways perhaps the most uh, significant part of this and that's to try and put in place a legal framework that would actually um, make this kind of uh, exploitation possible. W one of the issues with space mining is that there is uh, the, 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 the space law as we have it today. Ownerships. It's about ownership. That's yeah. right. Space law says nobody can own anything in space. So the, in, uh, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 and its various subsidiary, uh, uh, you know, legal instruments, that says that, uh, that nobody can actually stake a claim to own any uh, entity, any natural entity out there in space. But the issue then becomes, well, does that stop you actually digging things up and bringing it back? And, you know, if, if people react in horror and say, no, that must contravene the space treaty, you can immediately point to NASA, the moon. who the 1960s, uh, uh, as you said a few minutes ago, sent 12 astronauts to the surface of the moon. They brought back about 380 kilograms of, uh, of rock and soil samples. Now, and Mars, too. We've brought back material from Mars. Uh, have we, we not? No. We've tried to. Come, uh, it's come naturally. We have oh, okay. brought back bits of comets, though. 
the, the Mars, Mars actually, uh, we have samples from Mars because um, there's a few meteorites which are known to have come from the surface of Mars. But uh, uh, comet, cometary material has been brought back, um, but more especially, it's all this stuff from the moon. Now, NASA mm. has made that freely available to uh, researchers all over the world, that the moon samples. But, if, but, you know, nobody would really deny that if it comes to ownership, well, it belongs to NASA. They are the ones who basically went, uh, put, put the funding in place to go and get it and bring it back. The, um, it is one of the uh, um, government uh, members uh, in Luxembourg who I think summed it up rather well. Um, uh, Etienne Schneider, the economic minister, said... That essentially, the situation is equivalent to the rights of a trawler in international waters. The fishermen on the trawler own the fish they catch, but they don't own the ocean. Oh, that's and interesting. in some ways, it's a parallel. That's yeah. right. So this is the way Luxembourg is thinking. So I think this is a really interesting story. And, you know, down the track, I think we might find people beating a pathway to Luxembourg for the to, to, to first of all, um, to, to uh, develop the research, the engineering that's going to be needed for all this, but also to look at the legal framework. Uh, who would have thought Luxembourg would be out there in the space age? Well, who would have thought China was going to be uh, sending yes, people right. into space? And now they're probably one of yep. the lead nations in that regard. Uh, I guess the question that comes up now is uh, when are they likely to be able to do this and when will it be feasible? Because as we've explained in previous uh, discussions, getting into space ain't cheap. It ain't cheap. No, that's right. Although it is getting cheaper. And, you know, you and I have spoken about this before, that um, uh, with this push towards reusable boosters for the first stage of uh, large heavy lift rockets, um, that is certainly on its way. And that will reduce the cost of of uh, launches. Actually, the, the most optimistic people suggest it might bring the cost of a launch down by a factor of 100. Yeah. Uh, most people think it's more likely to be a, a factor of 10 or thereabouts, but the, clearly there is there are huge gains to be made by not throwing away the first stage. So that gets you, forgive the, uh, forgive the metaphor, that gets you off the ground um, uh, in terms of uh, relatively cheap exploitation of space. Uh, and that includes uh, space mining. Uh, I guess the companies that I mentioned earlier, the ones that actually are already investing in this, they clearly would like things to happen as quickly as possible and um, for their profits to start rolling in. But I think with the best will in the world, we're looking at maybe 10 to 20 years before we start seeing mineral resources coming from asteroids. Um, the, the, the big question, uh, as I said at the outset, is we don't really know for certain that these asteroids do contain these uh, this mineral and, um, and metallic wealth. Uh, but there's uh, really good reasons for thinking that they do. One estimate I saw... Um, let me get the numbers right here. Uh, I should check this, but I was looking at an article I wrote about this about four years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and the, there was an estimate that said something to the effect that a 30-metre asteroid could contain $50 billion worth of these, uh, these uh, rare metals. Now, if you 
exploit all that. Actually, there's a catch-22 here, Andrew, because if you find a cheap source, a relatively cheap source of all these metals, the bottom drops out of the market and you're you're not making any money anymore. So it's a very interesting situation and one that I think, uh, I hope you and I will uh, will talk about it down the track. I hope so too. Um, One final point, I'm guessing there's also no shortage of uh, potential asteroids out there. Yeah, that's right. There's um, well over a thousand. Uh, actually, it's it's more like twelve or thirteen thousand of these n- near Earth asteroids that have been discovered to date. These are the small ones, the sort of thirty to fifty meter class of objects, uh, which um, w- which suggests that there are probably many more. And uh, th- yeah, they're they're out there in abundance. Uh, finding them is slightly less easy, but I think it will happen. Mm, okay, watch this space. And you're listening to The Space Nuts with me, Andrew Dunkley, and Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Roger, you're live, sir, here also. Space Nuts. Now we're going to talk about a man who, uh, who, who recently passed away, a name that you probably should be familiar with, but I would imagine if you did a street poll on Edgar D. Mitchell uh, and surveyed a 1,000 people, most would struggle to, to place him, which is which is a little bit sad in the history of humanity, because he's one of only twelve people who have set foot on the moon. Uh, he's uh, he's now one of uh, the dearly departed, but um, he, he lived a good life, and and it was his only mission to the moon, Apollo fourteen. Uh, that's correct, Andrew. Yes, his his only space mission. In fact, um, Edgar Mitchell, in some ways, came to the. The, the 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 moon race if you can call it that during the 1960s quite late uh he's about the same age as the other um astronauts particularly buzz aldrin and and neil armstrong i think they were all born round about 1930 edgar mitchell was born september 17th 1930 he was a texan um his his Early training was uh, industrial management and uh, eventually got a, a, a bachelor's degree in aeronautics uh, and a doctorate of uh, aeronautics and astronautics. But that was in 1964. And by then, the, you know, the Apollo moon uh, program was very well, really pretty well uh, developed. It was um, on the eve that the NASA was on the eve of, uh, of starting the Gemini program, which was that uh, series of space launches, 12 of them, in fact, during the mid-1960s that were all about uh, how you dock with, uh, dock with spacecraft in, in space, how you rendezvous with them, how you do space navigation. Fantastic stuff. Um, I was totally inspired by the Gemini program as a, as a, a young student at the time. Uh, but uh, NASA did not select uh, Edgar Mitchell as an astronaut until 1966. Uh, and so he was actually uh, very much uh, a, a newbie uh, when the Apollo program was relatively well advanced. He was uh, backup uh, crew for Apollo 9 and Apollo 10 uh, and actually played a big part in Apollo 13, the mission that didn't make it to the moon, because he was one of the um, people working uh, in um, in the simulator, actually, at the Johnson Space Center, trying to fit together how these guys could improvise and, and make sure everything worked all right, developing procedures that, uh, that, that of course, brought the astronauts back home. Um, he walked on the moon, as you said, on Apollo 14. I think that was in 1971. Um, but uh, only a couple of years later, he retired from NASA. He probably saw the writing on the wall. There weren't going to be any more... Uh, Apollo missions, and he founded uh, what he called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, 
um, which is all about research into the nature of consciousness. So he got interested in the human condition and in mm. particular the, the way humans uh, interact with space and space flight. Um, he co-founded in 1984 the Association of Space Explorers uh, and it's an organization for all who share the experience of space travel. There can't be many members in that. Um, it will grow, of course, as oh, space will, tourism yes. comes in. But, uh, but that, you know, it's, it's, um, it, his, his, I guess his underlying interest was to provide uh, new understanding of the human condition resulting from the epoch of space exploration. That's NASA's words, not mine, but that's mm. basically what, what he was all about. Very sad, died at the age of 85, as you said, had a great life, but maybe one of the unsung heroes of the, of the Apollo era. Yes, indeed, and uh, I suppose we do reach a point in history where um, people who've done extraordinary things like this uh, are going to... Uh, to leave us and it, it's always sad and that was certainly the case with Neil Armstrong who passed away a few years ago and uh, and, and look they've done uh, amazing things and they've, they've sort of forged a path for, uh, for the future of humanity because space does appear to be our, uh, our great future uh, even though there's a lot we've still to di discover uh, in the deep oceans of this planet uh, it yeah. seems in many respects it's easier to get off the planet than it is to go down under it uh, at some level, that's right. Yes, I mean, you know, your point is well made. There is still a huge amount to do in terms of exploring the Earth, but there's also a huge amount to do in terms of the well-being of of, uh, of our species here on Earth. And um, I, I think... Uh, and, and that forever will be the argument, why pour money into going into space when there's so much need on Earth? And that well, will be tossed around a, forever. There is... Um, the answer to that is it's never a straight choice. Mm. Um, you are, uh, you know, if it was if it was between uh, a, a new space mission and feeding poor and homeless people, you do the humanitarian stuff. But it's because we uh, we live in a in a world where there are choices and where governments, in particular, see the the promise of investing into perhaps the deep future, future a long way away. But nevertheless, those investments are things that we, we must make. You, you wouldn't expect um, a pair of space nuts to say anything else, really, would you? But it is true, and that's the argument. That is why we actually invest in spaceflight. Very good, Fred. As always, great to catch up with you, and we'll be back again next week with another edition of Space Nuts. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.